Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's episode, we've got what you need to know to get you ready for upcoming special town meetings and elections, as well as what's going on with the Cape Cod theater season. And Ira Wood is here with his matter of opinion. This week, about madmen and scapegoats. The fall schedule of special town meetings and town elections is now in full swing with the Orleans town election and Yarmouth town meeting on Tuesday and the Dennis town meeting on Thursday in the week ahead. The Brewster town meeting will take place on Monday the 13th when water quality and housing issues will get most of the attention. The Brewster warrant includes requests to fund a pond management plan and to create a Herring River watershed permit. The pond management plan will help improve water quality in the town's more than 80 ponds and contribute to fulfilling the town's obligations to meet state requirements for nitrogen mitigation in the Pleasant Bay watershed. The Herring River watershed permit would also help Brewster meet the state's new watershed regulations for nitrogen-sensitive areas in the neighborhoods around Long Pond, Sheep Pond, and Seymour Pond. Brewstertown meeting focus will then shift to housing, with two proposed bylaws aimed at regulating short-term rentals on the warrant. One proposal would require short-term rental owners to register their properties every year. Owners would pay a $150 annual fee, with proceeds going to help fund new town positions to oversee and enforce the new regulations. The second proposal would restrict the number of short-term rentals that a property owner can have in Brewster to one unless the owner is a full-time resident of Brewster. Full-time residents would be allowed to operate two properties as short-term rentals. Provincetown voters passed a similar bylaw last week, limiting the number of short-term rental properties that one owner can operate. The bylaws on the Brewster warrant come in the form of a citizen petition organized by Matilda Delano, who said the aim is to stop large corporations and other big owners from operating on a large scale in Brewster. This, she argues, would create more year-round housing and provide more opportunities for residents to stay in the town they work in. Town manager Peter Lombardi said the select board and the finance committee have voted unanimously against supporting both of Delano's proposals, but he said the select board wants to evaluate the impacts of short-term rentals on the community and to consider potential policy solutions in the 2025 strategic plan. The Brewster Town meeting will convene at 6 p.m. on November 13th at Stony Brook Elementary School on Underpass Road. Provincetown may be ahead of other towns in our region in finding solutions to the housing crisis, but the median condominium price in Provincetown would still have to fall by as much as 70% to be affordable for someone earning the area median income. That assessment is included in a review of short-term rental regulations prepared for Provincetown by the University of Massachusetts Donahue Institute Economic and Public Policy Research Group. 
Assistant Town Manager Dan Riviello said the study shows that there's a lot more work to be done in the effort to increase the number of year-round rentals. During the annual town meeting in April, citizen petitions were brought forward that would have regulated short-term rentals. Riviello said the disagreement among voters that surfaced during the debate underlined the need for the study. The report found that many properties in Provincetown are more likely to be used as vacation homes and sit vacant rather than being rented out as short-term rentals. The study suggested that short-term rental regulation is therefore unlikely to reduce home prices or rents to a level affordable to residents or to induce owners of vacation homes to rent them out to local workers. Riviello said the study dispels the myth that homes are either short-term rentals or year-round rentals when actually most properties in town are seasonal homes that are sometimes used as short-term rentals for a small amount of time. Although short-term rental regulations won't solve the housing crisis on their own, voters overwhelmingly voted to ban corporations from being able to get short-term rental certificates and to limit the number of short-term rental certificates that any one person can have. Those regulations will go into effect as soon as they are approved by the Attorney General, which should happen in the next 60 to 90 days. At the other end of the housing market, the house teetering on the top of a dune on Chiquesset Neck Road is for sale again, less than two years after it changed hands the last time. The listing came less than two weeks after a judge upheld the Wellfleet Conservation Commission's ruling that the owner of the house could not build a rock revetment to protect the house from erosion. The house overlooks Cape Cod Bay, just north of the narrow strip of sand known as the Gut. It has been the subject of controversy since it was built by Mark and Barbara Blash in 2010. The coastal bank under the house has been eroding by six to seven feet every year, and the foundation of the house is now within a few feet of the edge. In 2018, the Blashes requested permission from the Wellfleet Conservation Commission to build a 241-foot rock revetment to protect it from erosion and were turned down. They appealed, and in February 2021, their plan was rejected again. In February 2019, the owners had filed suit against the Conservation Commission in Barnesville County Superior Court. When the Blashes sold the house in 2021 for $5.5 million, the new owner opted to continue the suit. On October 2nd of this year, the court affirmed the Conservation Commission's decision that a revetment would violate wetlands protection laws. The house was listed for $4.5 million on October 11th. The waters around Cape Cod have seen some unusual visitors this year, including five orcas in June and one manatee in September. Now, scientists with the New England Aquarium are reporting a sighting of three sperm whales. The whales, including an adult swimming with a calf, were spotted on October 19th, as researchers were conducting a routine aerial survey over the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument, about 130 miles east-southeast of Cape Cod. The sighting of the sperm whale calf was the first in six years of aerial surveys of the area. While scientists said no overarching conclusions can be made about the presence of the calf, the sighting is evidence that babies are being born into the population. Sperm whales, listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act, are the largest of the toothed whales, 
and the third largest whale species after blue whales and fin whales. Sperm whales were a primary target of the commercial whaling industry, which nearly eliminated all sperm whale populations. Although whaling is no longer a major threat, sperm whale populations are still recovering. The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument is one of the nation's newer natural monuments and the only marine national preserve in the U.S. Atlantic Ocean. President Obama designated the monument in 2016 to protect the diversity of the habitat and its importance as a home to many endangered and threatened species. Theater season is in full swing on Cape Cod, with stages across the region lighting up with a wide variety of options for theater goers to consider. This Saturday, November 4th, for one night only at Wellfleet Preservation Hall, Nina Schessler is directing Susan Lambert in the musical solo show The Couch. Schessler was the longtime artistic director at the Cape Cod Theater Company, Harwich Junior Theater, until her retirement two years ago. Jonathan Goldberg is on the piano for the show. Lambert has played a number of roles in musicals, dramas, and comedies on Off-Broadway, in stock and regional theater, and on European tours. You can find out more at wellfleetpreservationhall.org. The Eventide Theater Company in Dennis presents Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, based on the classic 1946 holiday movie in which banker George Bailey, played in the movie by Jimmy Stewart, gets a look at what life would be like in Bedford Falls without him. With the help of a tightly knit ensemble and live sound effects, the story unfolds as George considers his life one fateful Christmas Eve. Directed by Toby Wilson, there are eight performances running through November 12th. Tickets are available at eventidearts.org. The Chatham Drama Guild is presenting Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, where a group of people trapped by bad weather in a mansion are dropping dead one by one. Originally written in 1952 as a radio play to celebrate Queen Mary's 80th birthday, The Mousetrap has been translated into 27 languages, performed in 50 countries, and is one of the longest-running plays in the world. The Chatham Drama Guild takes its turn in the mansion this Friday through November 26th. You can find out more about the production and get tickets at chatdramaguild.org. And if you'd rather be on stage than in the audience, Cape Rep's Young Company is now open for enrollment. During an eight-week program, actors will learn the ins and outs of professional theater by participating in a rigorous rehearsal and performance process led by Maura Hanlon, Associate Artistic Director for Cape Rep. Students will learn theater essentials such as acting, directing, improvisation, and audition preparation. Cape Rep's Young Company is open to students grade 8 through high school, and participation is free. Enrollment is currently open, with the first day of the program slated for December 9th. For more information about Young Company or to enroll, visit caperep.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. The town of Truro has once again postponed its special town meeting, originally set for October 21st and rescheduled for November 2nd, 
to November 16th at Truro Central School. Town moderator Paul Wysotsky said the decision was made to give the Board of Registrars time to complete the hearings of 66 voter registration challenges filed with the town after it was discovered some part-time residents may have changed their voter registration status to vote in the special town meeting. David Sullivan, former legal counsel to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's Election Division, said that strategy was illegal. The voter challenges were filed after an email sent to the board of the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association by Vice President Regan McCarthy was made public. The email included instructions for switching one's voter registration. Town officials have not yet set times or dates for the voter registration hearings. Of the 67 challenged voters, nine were no longer registered in Truro as of a voter roll dated October 27th. Summonses are being served this week for hearings before the registrars, which must be scheduled within 2 to 14 days of the summons being issued. Wysotsky said state law authorizes him to continue the town meeting for up to 14 days whenever the moderator feels voters are being improperly excluded from the town meeting or voters in attendance are being deprived of the opportunity to participate. At stake in the special town meeting are competing proposals for a new Department of Public Works facility as well as a housing proposal to build 160 affordable units on a plot around Truro Central School known as the Walsh property. The event on October 21st, when Wysotsky officially rescheduled the meeting, was heavily attended and several members of the crowd heckled and booed Wysotsky as he spoke. Wysotsky said his decision to postpone the meeting has been guided by town council and the Secretary of State's Elections Division. He said that regardless of where anyone stands on the issues, he hopes that every person who is eligible to vote is unquestionably allowed to do so. Meanwhile, at its October 24th meeting, the Truro Select Board unanimously voted to approve the town's housing needs assessment and production plan. The document was prepared by consultant Jen Goldson and the members of the Housing Authority. The plan is meant to serve as a roadmap to reaching housing goals laid out by the state's Chapter 40B Comprehensive Permit Law, which encourages towns to have subsidized housing inventory of at least 10% of their total units. Once certified by the state, a housing production plan is looked on favorably by funding sources, according to Housing Authority Chair Kevin Grunwald. The plan's goal is to create 110 total new units in the next five years, with 260 new units by 2036. It lays out five main strategies, including developing the Walsh property for housing and enacting policy and zoning changes to encourage affordable housing development. The plan also suggests pursuing the acquisition of vacant properties, such as the condemned Truro Motor Inn, for conversion into affordable housing. 
The planning board voted in favor of the plan with one dissenting vote and one abstention. The dissent came from Chair Rich Roberts, who criticized the numerical goals that the plan lays out. The median sale price of a single-family home in Truro in 2022 was nearly $1.4 million. A buyer would need to earn about $375,000 a year to afford that. The median household income in Truro in 2022 was about $84,000. The town's largest affordable housing development, Sally's Way, has a total of 16 units. More than 200 families are on its wait list, according to the plan. Staying in Truro, although the Zoning Board of Appeals put off a formal vote until November 6th, members of the board made it clear at an October 23rd public hearing that they plan to uphold a cease-and-desist order issued on Robert Martin's Route 6 landscaping operation because it violates federal regulations as well as local zoning laws. The property at 100 Route 6 that had been a gas station since the 1930s is within the boundaries of the Cape Cod National Seashore, but because the gas station was there before the park was established, it was allowed to stay. A leak in an underground fuel tank in 1998 put an end to the gas station. State environmental officials ordered the tanks removed and required cleanup of the contaminated soil and groundwater. The store there continued to sell other items until 2003 when a fire destroyed the building. The Park Service allowed the owners to continue to sell firewood on the property, and the family went on to lease the lot to a few different firewood sellers over the years. When the current owner leased it to Robert Martin in January, the firewood stand grew larger. Martin leveled the lot, cleared some trees, and installed concrete bays to hold large piles of mulch, loam, gravel, and crushed shells. Martin made those changes without getting required permits. In addition to upholding the cease and desist order, town planner Barbara Carboni told the board it could order Martin to clear all the material off the lot and direct the building commissioner to levy fines if Martin fails to comply. Commercial and industrial uses that predated the establishment of the seashore were allowed to continue as non-conforming, but only as long as they aren't expanded or altered. While the board postponed its official vote to November 6th, it was clear that members agreed that Martin's operation violates zoning laws. The delay allows Carboni to work on a list of findings to defend the decision if challenged in court. The town of Wellfleet has been awarded a $3 million Mass Works grant for the 95 Lawrence Road Housing Project Wastewater Treatment Facility. The $4.6 million project was approved at the special town meeting in September. The project includes the construction of a wastewater treatment facility that will support the 46-unit affordable housing project, the police and fire stations, and the elementary school. Bonding was approved for the project at the special town meeting for the remaining $1.6 million. The award comes after a three-year effort by the Clean Water Advisory Committee, whose first grant proposal three years ago was declined.
The town expects to put the project out to bid early next year, according to town manager Rich Waldo. A future expansion of the wastewater treatment facility is planned to serve a number of neighboring properties. Construction of the Lawrence Road housing project is expected to be complete in February of 26, with possible move-in dates by May of 2026. Orleans is gearing up for the town election on Tuesday, November 7th, where voters will face three requests for Proposition 2.5 overrides. Voters will be asked to decide if the town should be allowed to assess real estate and personal property taxes to pay the costs for eight new full-time firefighters. The town presently has five firefighters per shift. The additional staff would provide for seven firefighters per shift, allowing for two ambulances or an ambulance and a fire engine on the road simultaneously. Town meeting overwhelmingly gave the green light for funding for the new firefighters, but the override also needs to be passed for the funds to be available. The second question on the Orleans ballot asks whether Orleans should be allowed to raise taxes to cover the purchase of an aerial ladder truck for the fire department. Town meeting supported $500,000 for the new truck. And the last question asks if the town should be allowed to assess additional taxes to fund staffing and expenses for the recreation department. The request stems from a study completed by researchers at UMass Boston, which recommended ways to improve staffing and services within the department. The money would add 1.5 full-time equivalent positions and help fund facility use and maintenance. Voters at the November 7th special town meeting in Yarmouth will discuss an article that eases restrictions on accessory apartments. The change is meant to broaden the range of housing choices by increasing the number of units for year-round rental, while at the same time protecting the character and property values of single-family neighborhoods. According to town administrator Robert Rittenauer, the subject of accessory apartments is much debated in Yarmouth, the planning board held over 27 public meetings throughout the past year to develop amendments to the bylaw and hopes to address all the concerns that residents had. The current zoning bylaw limits accessory apartments to family related units or affordable units that include specific provisions related to deed restrictions, maximum rental rates, and tenant eligibility requirements. The new bylaw would eliminate the restrictions, allowing the property owner to choose their tenants and rents. That article needs a two-thirds vote to take effect. The Yarmouth Town Meeting is at 6 p.m. on November 7th at the new Intermediate School on Station Ave. That will also be the site of the Dennis Town Meeting at 7 p.m. on November 9th. Of the 24 articles on the special town meeting warrant in Dennis, seven seek to tap into Community Preservation Act money to pay for upkeep of town historical sites. Voters will also be asked to transfer ambulance receipts to buy a new ambulance at no direct cost to taxpayers. And an article will ask voters to transfer $1.5 million of free cash into the Wastewater Stabilization Fund, 
which will offer benefits for the town down the line. The future of the former Nathaniel H. Wixon Innovation School in South Dennis is dealt with in Article 23, seeking $300,000 for the cost of assessment, survey, and testing of the grounds. Again, the Dennis Town meeting takes place at 7 p.m. on November 9th at the new Intermediate School on Station Ave in South Yarmouth. And finally today, on the heels of the final season of service at Terra Luna, another North Truro restaurateur is ready to move on. Robert Montano, chef-owner of Montano's Restaurant, has shared his love of food with the Outer Cape community for 35 years, churning out homemade pasta daily. Now Montana is looking to pass the restaurant on to someone new. The popular restaurant, sitting on four acres with 188 seats in 6,300 square feet of space in the National Seashore, is for sale. Montano said he's not in a hurry, and he's not looking to see the restaurant close down. He'll wait for the right buyer. Montano and his wife Dawn bought what is now Montano's in 1988, Formerly Captain Josie's, the couple took over the restaurant and lived upstairs for seven years, a space now given over to staff housing. Montano said he sees the staff as members of the family, and keeping that family feeling intact is his goal as he looks to move on. He said he's had a couple of potential buyers come take a look, but there are no deals yet. He'll stick around for as long as it takes to find someone who wants to keep the restaurant going. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Are you obsessed with the Israel-Hamas war? Personally, I can't stop thinking of anything else. I know I could be talking about a dozen different things today. All my silly observances and complaints, all the dumb ways the modern world doesn't seem to make sense, all the nutty interactions between my wife and me that mimic those of many partners. I actually keep lists of all this stuff. But all I can think about is the Israel-Hamas war. I seem to feel it in my bones. I can't stop scrolling the news or imagining what life is like for over a million displaced people living in the cold and the dark, wandering without a home, hearing bombs exploding day and night, no water, food, fuel, or hospital space. At the same time, I can't suppress images of Israelis being attacked. The reports of militants throwing grenades through people's bedroom windows, the rapes, or the note found on the body of one of the killed militants that states, the enemy is a disease that has no cure except beheading and removing their hearts and livers. And of course, I can't seem to shake the initial response to the massacre. The Facebook posts on the morning after, those of my social media friends who posted images of support for Hamas, followed by the online congratulations from university intellectuals on the left. 
One from a Yale University professor celebrated October 7th as an extraordinary day. Another from Cornell described the massacre as exhilarating and energizing. Despite the fact that American Jews overwhelmingly support a two-state solution in Israel and despise the extremist Netanyahu government, there has been an astounding 400% increase in harassment, vandalism, and violence against Jews in the three weeks since the Hamas massacre. Anti-Semitism, of course, is thousands of years old and exists all over the world, but our country has its own long history of dehumanizing and marginalizing ethnic groups and minorities. After Every horrible situation in recent memory, it seems, there's a piling on, an effort to seek revenge, not on those responsible or directly involved, but the people who resemble or represent them. After the attacks on the World Trade Center, Muslims became the target, their houses spray-painted, their mosques receiving bomb threats, car windows broken, women and girls' hijabs torn from their heads. As a result of COVID, Asian Americans became targets, from taunts to outright assaults in the street. In the year after the pandemic began, there were over 9,000 reports of racially motivated crimes. And after Putin invaded Ukraine, Russian restaurants across the United States were vandalized. Do I need to mention attacks against migrants and asylum seekers crossing the southern border, the hatred unleashed on gay people in response to AIDS, the crimes against African Americans in reaction to the social justice protests after the George Floyd murder? Scapegoating is a psychological defense mechanism in which humans try to deal with their fear and frustration and powerlessness by projecting blame on others who look like the purported enemy or come from where they came from or have similar sounding names. And you don't have to be a member of a minority to be scapegoated. I remember a friend who years ago went on a vacation to Greece with her husband who then had a sudden heart attack there and died. She was bereft, powerless, vulnerable, and totally alone. And yet, the local police mocked her sorrow and laughed at her pain. Why? Because she was an American, and her president was George W. Bush, who had just made war on Iraq. Was she to blame? Of course not. Are any of us to blame for the actions of the megalomaniac madmen that we somehow represent? No, but we're all potential scapegoats. And this week, I just can't help thinking about anything else. I'm Ira Wood, and that's strictly my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. 
Now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz with Joel Shaw here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.